more good news, a lot of good things going on. Uh, if you didn't get a bulletin, grab one on your way out, or you can look online and grab yours. But some good things going on. In two weeks, we're going to have the, the back-to-school drive giveaway. We did this last year, uh, and you're welcome to volunteer, be a part of that day. That's August 31st. The details are in the bulletin. Or if you want to give some money to help uh, stuff those 2,500 backpacks, uh, that would be great. So look at the details there. And then on August the 1st, during our Coffee Fellowship, we're going to have a time to say thank you to Haley Smith. Uh, she served as our children's ministry director for uh, six years, and uh, it's, uh, she's decided to go back into teaching. And so we're happy for her, but we told her, you cannot do this without giving us an opportunity to say thank you. And we're going to do that next Sunday, August the 1st. So we'll share more about that, but just be aware that that's coming up. Um, also, we're excited about the four men that we put before the church to be elders, and we're, we're grateful for that, for that process. I'll be praying for them, for their wives, for their families. Uh, again, just a lot of good things going on. I want to begin with a question. What was the good news about the name of Jesus? Think about it. How often... You would read about the name of Jesus. Why is the name of Jesus good news? This is something that the early church had to learn and they had to figure out. And so as you, you read through the book of Acts, you see the church in its very beginning. And what you notice there is the name of Jesus it's not just who he is or, or what he does or even every role or descriptive title. Bill mentioned earlier about having that relationship with Jesus. When you say, in the name of Jesus, what we learn, because we see the early church learning this, especially about Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, is you are invoking the kingdom of God. When you call on the name of Jesus, when you do something in the name of Jesus, and this became so important to the early church, that's why we read that phrase so often, in the name of Jesus. So much so, Paul, you recall, would even say, do everything in word or deed in the name of Jesus. That's why we're studying these names of Jesus all these titles, all these roles, all these descriptive terms, so we can better understand what it means, who He is, how He lives, what He does for us. Today, the name is advocate. Now, that's a term for lawyer, and I thought about this. You know, we, we make fun of lawyers almost as much as we make fun of preachers, but I enjoy the lawyer jokes more. <laughs> how many lawyer jokes are there? Only three. The rest are true stories. <laughs> An attorney tells his client, I have some good news and some bad news. What's the bad news, the, uh, the accused said? The bad news is your blood is all over the crime scene and the DNS prove you did it. Well, what's the good news? The attorney says, your cholesterol is good. <laughs> some say a good lawyer is an oxymoron. But the truth is, when you need a lawyer, you want him or her to be a good one. True? 
And you never met a person who didn't need a good lawyer. Because you've never met a person who never sinned. Look at 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Kind of in the middle of a thought here. We'll talk about this more in the lesson. I'm going to continue reading into chapter 2. But 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then chapter 2 opens, my little children, which is a phrase that John would use in his letter often. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word translated advocate is the Greek word paraclete. You may have studied this before. It's kind of good to know. It just literally means, literally translated, to call someone alongside And that term was used in those days, typically in a judicial sense. So I want to try to help us this morning to understand Jesus as our advocate, the one who speaks in our defense before the bar of God. Because what you've got here in this passage is a very strong metaphor. It's the picture of a court scene with God sitting on the bench. And who do you think the prosecutor would be? The first blank, we have an adversary on the offense. The Bible calls him the devil. The Bible calls him Satan. The Bible calls him our prosecutor. The Bible calls him our accuser. And that's a very fitting image because that's what he does, and he's great at it. Look at Revelation 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He accuses them day and night before our God. See, accusation is the specialty of Satan. But I would guess you already know that. Ever found yourself just overwhelmed at times with the spirit of condemnation where you've heard the accusations and you feel condemned the bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god the book of romans just kind of opens up with that satan has evidence he knows he knows your sin he knows you're guilty and he's got proof every single one of us has violated the law of God. And in light of such condemning testimony, what are we to do? Well, I can tell you what you shouldn't do. We shouldn't attempt to make excuses. We shouldn't attempt to to, to be our own counsel, although we do that sometimes. Kind of make the case, I'm a victim of circumstances. If you knew my parents, if you knew my upbringing, if you know what I've been through, or, or maybe we, we try to justify ourselves saying, I know I've got my faults, I'm not perfect, But I know some people, and compared to them, you ever find yourself thinking like that? Those kinds of defenses remind me of the phrase that lawyers know. The man who serves as his own attorney has a fool for a client. 
We need someone who can speak in our defense. And not just make a case, but somebody who will win. So we've got an adversary on the offense, but we also have an advocate for our defense. Now, that does not mean that we don't need to take sin seriously. That's what we were reading earlier. That's what John talked about. We started reading in verse 8, but the verse before that, you remember, talks about walking in the light and how important that is. That means that we should try to be sinless in our behavior, walking in the light, trying to follow the will of God, trying to be examples to others. But even the most dedicated, even the most loyal, the one who's trying their best to not sin will never be sinless. It just can't happen. That's what John's writing about. So all of us then need an advocate. We need someone to come alongside. Look again at his words, 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice he says, we have an advocate. Not you. Even John, the apostles, they need an advocate. If you're going to plead your own case, it's a losing proposition. Remember the story of Job and his three friends, and we can say friends kind of loosely there, because you remember that story and, and how they came to Job and said, Job, you're a miserable sinner. If you just come clean with God and, and tell him your sin and confess your sin, he would take all this suffering away. Well, finally, Job answered in chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, truly I know that it is so. So he didn't deny the fact that he was a sinner. But how can a man be in the right before God, he says? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. That's the ESV. The NIV says he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Job was saying, pure? Show me a man who's pure. There's not one. I know that. I'm not. You're not. No one is pure. How can you argue that before God? You're going to lose every single time. But the good news is that we can call alongside an advocate. That's what the Bible term hears. Someone who can answer for us every single time. And Jesus has never lost the case. No matter who he's advocating for. Now, don't think, yeah, you're talking about the man who served as an elder for 40 years. Or you're talking about the, the couple that were missionaries all their lives. No, every single case that he takes... The vilest of sinners, he wins because he came alongside. This morning, I want us to see how this could possibly be true. Ask yourself, why would Jesus take your case? You ever thought about that? If he is our advocate, why would he take your case? What do you have to offer him? You know, typically, and it's kind of part of the jokes we talk about with attorneys, is the corruption, because they want the money. And we understand that. They're doing a service, and so you've got to pay them. But what are you going to pay Jesus? What have you got to offer Him? What can you do? Why would He even take your case? Well, here's some points I want us to get. First, He appeals because of perfect love. What do you think about this? Because as I was studying through this this week and just praying, I thought, there are some who really need to get this. 
Because you still struggle in your faith to believe that you're saved. So understand first, he appeals because of a perfect love. The saving work of God in Christ could only be explained that a love that is too holy, too gracious, too, too powerful, too merciful to fully comprehend with our limited minds. The best we can do is just read the verses in the Bible and take them by faith. That He loves me that much. Look at a couple of verses. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It really wasn't the criminals who put Him there. It was the love for you and me. That's why He went to the cross. That's why He endured the cross for six hours. It was love that held Him on the cross. The Father sacrificed the Son because He did not want to spend eternity without you. That's love. That's what we're talking about here. And the cross declares that God will never love you more than He ever has. It's a constant. That's what the Scripture says. Now, sometimes we struggle with this. Do you? I know He loves me, but if I just read my Bible more, if I just prayed more, if I just did more good things, then God would love me more. If I could just be more dedicated, more consistent, God would love me. No. You don't read that anywhere in Scripture. Now, those are good things, and we should be doing those good things. But that's not why God loves you. In fact, you can't do anything that will make Him love you less. His love is constant. And even when you turn your back on Him, He doesn't turn His back on you. He's always ready. Just like that prodigal son's father. Always ready. He appeals out of a perfect love. Let's take it a step further. That's why He took the case. But that's not why He won the case. Love alone cannot effectively defend without compromising Justice. Now, this is important. I want to make sure we get this. Think through this with me. Maybe this is a good way to illustrate it. Suppose I committed a crime. I'm guilty. And my brother, Tony, is my attorney. He's not an attorney. He's smart. He thinks he's one. But, but this is to say he is, okay? I've committed the crime. My brother, Tony, is going to be my attorney. So he says to the judge, I know Randy is guilty. What he did was wrong. The evidence is clear. But I love my brother. I've always loved my brother. Ever since he was born. I love my brother, judge. And so I'd do anything for him. So set him free. Now, if that judge is a fair judge, how would he respond? I know you love your brother. You should love your brother. But that doesn't undo the crime. Your feelings from your brother do not satisfy justice. Take it a step further. Let's say my brother is my attorney and the judge is my dad, my father. So my brother saying, I love my brother, Randy. He's guilty, yes, but I love him. 
you love him, Dad. You love him more than I do. We both love him. We've got to find a way to clear him. Since we both love him so much, let him go free. Now, if my dad is just, what's he going to do? How's he going to respond? Yes, I love my son. But yes, he's guilty. He did the crime. So how do you respond to that? Justice demands more than love. I want to make sure we get this. Love explains why he took the case, but it doesn't explain why he won the case. Our advocate is going to make the case that's going to preserve the justice, the holiness of God's law. Which brings me to point number two. He appeals with a perfect plea. He appeals with a perfect plea. Our advocate does not disagree with our adversary concerning our guilt. We are guilty. So the things the accuser says, maybe some of them are trumped up, maybe some of them are exaggerated, but the fact is, we are guilty. He knows that. He does not argue extenuating circumstances. He does not say there was a temporary insanity. He does not try to weasel out in some way. He does not plead our innocence. Do you know what he does? He presents his own life as grounds for our acquittal. I know he's guilty. That's a fact. What you're saying is true. You're accusing him, guilty. But he presents his own life as grounds for the acquittal, arguing that he's already paid the penalty for our sins. There is one key reason why that plea is effective. Because God said so. Let me show you a verse. 1 John 2 Verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Look at the phrase here, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why did he call him Jesus Christ, the righteous? Why didn't he call him the king? Why didn't he call him uh, uh, Lord? Why didn't he call him Savior? He called him righteous. Again, we're in the court scene. He's righteous. Since Jesus is righteous, only Jesus can argue that he's a qualified substitute to receive the penalty due us. See, if he's not righteous, then he couldn't do that. He'd have to take his own. When he says he is the righteous, that's the blank in the outline here. Notice, he fulfilled the law by his obedience. That's why he can say that. Romans 5, 19 for as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous. What does that mean? What's he saying here? It means the Son of God has absolutely, completely kept the law. That's why his life was so perfect. That's why we keep talking about that. And there's no penalty that he deserves but second, not only has he fulfilled the law by his obedience, he satisfied the law by his death. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you break a law, then you're under a curse. Jesus redeemed us from the curse. Why? Because he fulfilled the law by his obedience. And he satisfied what justice demands. 
This is not a case of the judge just putting on blinders or looking the other way because he loves the one being accused. Or he's trying to find a way so they don't have to pay the penalty. That's not what's happening at all. The law's been broken. Someone needs to pay. And the condemnation falls, but it just doesn't fall on us. It fell on Jesus. So look what the advocate says. The the adversary is accusing my client of crimes already paid for. Already judged and paid for. You ever heard the phrase double jeopardy? It's a concept in our legal system, and for the most part, it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's a legal concept that protects you from being prosecuted more than once from the same offense. And you'll be glad to have it. In some ways, it helps us to understand what Jesus has done for us. The crime has been addressed. The sentence has been handed down. The penalty has been paid for the crime. Jesus took it for himself. So you cannot be charged. Already satisfied. Done. Finished, settled, completed. And you cannot be drugged back into court for something that's already been taken care of. Now, there's one way where the image falls short. I don't know how often this happens. I don't know that we can know. But sometimes in our legal system, double jeopardy protects the guilty. I read about a case in Wisconsin where a man stood before the judge and confessed a murder, but he could not be tried for it because two years earlier he was tried for that murder and found not guilty. Well, there the judge was hearing the man confess. He said, well, he's confessed. So he he turned to the district attorney and they looked it up and, and sure enough, he could not be tried. Double jeopardy in our legal system doesn't guarantee that justice will be served. That's something we need to understand. We must understand when our advocate makes the case, he does not compromise God's love and he does not compromise God's holiness. And that brings us to the third principle I want us to get. He appeals for perfect justice. He appeals for perfect justice. God's justice, his holiness must be satisfied before we can be declared justified. Again, I want to explain something to make sure that that we've got it clear in in our thinking. Sometimes we might even use the phrase, it's in some translations in our Bibles, it's in some of the songs we sing about being pardoned. And that's a beautiful concept. But if you think it through, a spiritual pardon, I'm not sure how biblical that is. President Richard Nixon was pardoned. Even if he was president before you were born, you still heard of him. You know he was guilty. He committed crimes. He broke the law. But he did not go to jail. He did not serve probation. He did not pay a fine. Why? Because the one who succeeded him, President Ford, pardoned him. That's not what happens to us spiritually. The Bible never teaches that we are simply pardoned. At least not the way our legal system uses that term. The Bible, think about it, more often will use the word justified. 
Why would Scripture say justified instead of pardoned? Well, there's an important difference. Justification declares that the requirement of the law has been met. Somebody broke the law? Yes. Justice must be served? Yes. Someone paid for the crime? Yes. That's justification. Understand that the death of Christ met the needed requirement for justice. Look at Romans 3, 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Now, earlier we read a verse in Romans that said he did this to demonstrate his love. Well, it does both. The cross did not just demonstrate the love of God, it also demonstrated the justice of God. At the cross, justice was satisfied, but not by us. It's not what we did at all. It's what God did through Jesus. Now, that's the argument of our advocate, and he's never lost a case. He wins every single time. And you would think that would make us so certain. We have an advocate. That's who Jesus is. That's the role that he plays. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Any of you remember feeling insecure about your salvation? Am I saved? Am I really saved? You know, we're not supposed to brag. You don't want to boast. We hope we're saved. We're going to do our best. We're going to try our best. Are we saved? That is not what the Holy Spirit had John to write here. John wrote these things so that you can know you are saved. Now, how do we put that into our brains? Why then are we still unsure? Because our adversary won't let up. He just keeps accusing and keeps accusing. Again, he's got correct information. You are guilty. He knows what you've done. But here's the truth. Satan cannot change the results of the trial. So we said earlier that John is kind of putting this metaphor, this court scene out here, and he's describing. We've got an advocate. We've got a, an accuser. But Satan cannot change the outcome of the trial. But he can make you feel guilty, even though you've been declared free justified. He can make you feel impure. He can make you lack confidence. He can remind you of your offense so much that shame is just right there and won't let you go. You know, to have our, our darkest, deepest inner thoughts, actions that maybe nobody knows, maybe just a few, maybe it's just between you and God. I think all of that is exposed. That is shameful. But again, the accuser cannot change the results of the trial. I want to make sure you get this. Satan cannot steal your salvation. He cannot. Now, you may choose to turn away from God. You may give in to sin. You may deny believing in Jesus. But that's your choice. But that's not Satan stealing you. Look what Jesus said in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Satan can never rob you of your salvation, but he can rob you of your joy. 
He can rob you of your effectiveness. Think about it. An insecure, doubtful disciple, I don't know. Am I saved? I'm not sure. If, if that's where you are, you're not going to pray boldly. You're not going to walk by faith. You're not going to believe what the Scripture tells you. You're not going to talk about Jesus because you're full of doubt and you're insecure. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to live a life that the rest of the world is interested in because they look at you and you're just so insecure. You're not even sure what you believe. God has provided grace because He understands how Satan operates. And we need grace to deal with these attacks. Let me close with two things to remember. When you doubt your salvation, when you are are feeling insecure, I want you to think about this. Do you ever have those moments? I mentioned this a moment ago. Maybe you're just going about your day. Maybe you're sitting in traffic. Maybe you're at the sink doing dishes or or, mowing the yard, just kind of just going about your day. And it seems like out of nowhere, Satan just brings to mind, or so it seems, something that you did. Whatever is that, that darkest thing in your life, and it's just right there. And then with that, you just start beating yourself. How, how could I have done that? I knew better. Why did I give in? Why did I do that? And you start doubting. How could God forgive me? I made such a mess. I hurt so many people. I did that for so long. And you start doubting. Maybe that's happened to all of us. But is that not the adversary attacking you? Accusing you? Again, he's got the list. He knows what you've done. And what he's bringing to mind is true. You are guilty. And that shame just comes running back. Two things to remember when you doubt your salvation. First, Jesus is our advocate God's Son is your eternal counselor. He's your eternal counselor. I want you to think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, and as we talked about earlier, that power of the resurrection forever changed everything, but that was not the end of what Jesus does for us. He went up to heaven, but He didn't retire Don't think of his feet kicked up on the ottoman just waiting for us to get there. What does the Bible teach us? He's right there besides God representing you and me. He's our advocate. Look at Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, and look at that phrase, on our behalf. There wasn't just a a happy reunion like, God, I went down to earth, I did what I was supposed to do, now I'm going to sit back here and wait. He's there beside God, right beside God, on our behalf. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, He is able to save the uttermost to those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession for them. For them. Do you get that? He is your advocate. He's right there beside God, living to make an intercession for you. The moment you sin, God sees it, Jesus sees it, everybody sees it. He said, He's mine, she's mine. Got it, washed, 
That's who he is. That's what he does. Your advocate is speaking in your defense. Look at Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is our hope. But understand what that means. That means Jesus is our certainty. He is in heaven and He's pleading your case. And He wins every single one. And to believe otherwise, to be blunt. I'm not sure how to say this. It's insulting that you would somehow be so overwhelmed with your guilt and shame to look at Jesus and say what He did on the cross was not enough? Think about that. So in your uncertainty, in your doubt, call it what it is. Realize it's Satan who's trying to take you down. Because Jesus is your advocate pleading your case, saying, He's mine. I remember the day that He confessed His faith. I remember Him being washed in baptism. His sins forevermore being taken away, removed. And He's walking in the light. And because He's walking in the light, He's cleansed. That's what Scripture tells us. God's Son is your eternal counselor. And here's one more. God's Spirit is your internal counselor. Actually, you've got two advocates, two attorneys, a dream team, if you will. You've got one at the right hand of God and one living within you. That's what the Bible tells us. John uses the Greek word paraclete I talked about a moment ago. First time he talked about Jesus. Four other times he uses it, but the other four times he's talking about the Holy Spirit. First he quotes Jesus, John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Sometimes we call attorneys counselors, don't we? I will give you another counselor to be with you forever, our eternal counselor. Sometimes we call lawyers counselor. Some translations will render this advocate or helper, depending on what Bible translation you're reading. Same concept. Look at John 14, 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Notice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that Satan, your accuser, is going to come after you with incriminating information. So not only is Jesus going to be at the right hand of God pleading your case as your eternal counselor, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Spirit of truth. Now get this, the Spirit of truth as your internal counselor. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you with God's truth. What does God say about you? What does God say about your sin? He never pushes it under the rug. He never says, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus died on the cross. He paid for your sin. That's how you can be justified. So I was thinking about this. The Holy Spirit filled with God's truth. There's ever been a time in modern culture where we've seen truth just ignored. Open the internet. Turn on the news. Are you not seeing it? I mean, it's just amazing. 
how the truth is right there and people are not seeing it. They don't want to see it. Folks, sometimes you and I can be just the same spiritually. You come to church, you read it in your Bible, your mom and dad taught you when you were little, you've taught Sunday school classes, and yet we still fall prey to this. Satan is so good at taking us down. So what this internal counselor wants you to do is to know truth. What does the Bible say? So that when Satan throws these lies at you, you can call them out. It's not true. It's not true. I know what God says about me. There's a story attributed to Martin Luther who's trying to describe how Satan does this, this constant combat that Satan has. Luther said one day Satan made him on the road, showed him a big long list, just kind of went down, hit the ground. Luther said, what is that? Satan said, it's a list of all your sins, Luther. What do you think about that? Luther replied, can't be. Surely you missed some because I sinned more than that. Satan came back later with an even longer list. Look here, Luther. Now I've listed all your sins. What do you say about that? I say this, Luther said, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Satan had no answer for that. 1 John 1, 7. We walk in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That is truth. That's what God wants us to know. We have an advocate in heaven proclaiming our acceptance. We have an advocate within promoting our assurance. Folks, that's what I call being well defended. We've got the dream team. I would say, listen to your counselors and take their their wise counsel. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who needs a good attorney? Every single person. One of us. Every single one of us. All have sinned. That's what the Bible says. We're going to sing a song to invite you to name the name of Jesus and to understand, begin understanding what that means. You're calling on the kingdom of God to begin working in you. To wash you clean in baptism. To give you the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you now have that eternal counselor and internal counselor. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And one day, we'll get to all be with Him forever. If you've not yet accepted salvation through Jesus, this song is to encourage you. Or if we can just pray for you to stop doubting and start believing. Once you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.